Your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks. That time of the month. That time of the month. Hello and welcome to that time of the month. Thank you guys so much for being here. It is such a great group of stories and storytellers. Um, we are we are. Stretching the topic a little bit till death do us part. Uh, we'll be starting with premarital um, stories and into uh, weddings and bachelor parties and uh, into actual marriage. But it's going to be awesome. Uh, are you guys ready for some stories? Okay. Welcome, Christopher Pilney. How did you get past Hippo with that story? That's what I. <laughs> did we just not tell them? We're all gonna die. <laughs> you poisoned everything in here, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I worked at Victoria's Secret a couple years ago. Uh, some of you might know that, some of you might not. Uh, but my time there, one of the girls got married, and I'll explain in the story, but I went to the lingerie shower and I made a penis cake. Um, what? So my story is called Betty Cocker. <laughs> It's difficult to make a penis cake without following each of your sentences with no pun intended. <laughs> Saying it's hard isn't made any better when you attempt to clarify with it's hard to do that is. Even I had to watch a lot of videos to make sure I did it right comes out wrong when you're explaining how you got the frosting to shoot out the tip so realistically. This all occurred to me as I was gently forming the balls on a chocolate penis cake I was making for a coworker's lingerie shower. I'd been working at Victoria's Secret at the time. One of three men in the store. The, the invitation had come as a requirement, the product of a previous party in which several co-workers had been left out and reported their displeasure to human resources. I was overjoyed. <laughs> requiring that I be invited to a lingerie shower was like requiring that a fat person be invited to Krispy Kreme. Before my co-worker, who I'll call Pear, could even finish her sentence, I cut her off. So Christopher, are you... I'll be there with a the chocolate penis. The idea for the cake actually came a bit later. About a week after I was invited, one of the girls planning the event posted a list in the break room for people to write down what they were bringing. One girl had written wine, another had written wine, a third had written wine, and finally, thank God, a fourth had written wine. While I enjoy a good bottle of red as much as the next person, this was a resounding problem. Not only was there no food to pair with the wine, but there was a disconcerting lack of phallic-shaped objects. From what I'd heard, penises were what these things were all about. Penis-shaped ice cubes float in a concoction housed in a penis-shaped cup, which you so delicately sip from a penis-shaped straw. When, when between drinks, you bite into a penis-shaped cookie while blowing up a penis-shaped balloon and discussing the great yoga pants selection they have at a sporting goods store called Dick's. It was for this reason, as one of the three penises in the store, my responsibility to make sure we were well represented. So I wrote my name on the sheet, and because I'm one of the most mature people in the world, and she was marrying a black guy, I wrote chocolate penis cake next to it. 
The chatter was almost instantaneous. Did you see what Chris wrote on the sheet? Oh God, look what Chris wrote on the sheet. Apparently Christopher is bringing a brown penis cake to my party. The latter came from pear, which I found to be somewhat offensive because brown is the word uh, Indian people most often use to describe themselves, and she was most certainly not marrying an Indian guy. I think you mean African-American penis cake, I said. Or if he prefers Afro-Caribbean penis cake. She rolled her eyes. Or just a Lenny Kravitz penis cake if he's somehow half-Jewish. I, I began my quest towards phallic confectionery wizardry, wizardry Wow, that's hard to say. At the Hustler store, when I was told they would have a wide selection of penis cake pans. Wandering through the dildos, a sales associate came over and asked if I needed help finding anything. I told him, I was look I told him what I was looking for, and he led me to a small area beside the erotic clothing section. Looks like, uh, yep, we're out of them, he said, scratching his arm. You've got to be kidding me. No, he said, it's wedding season. This happens every year. <laughs> I thanked him, and he walked away. Uh, and as he walked away, I, looked, I had to look for myself, just in case he missed an errant place pan. Sure enough, though, he was right. They had penis cookie cutters, penis ice cube trays, penis cupcake pans, cup cocks, they were called, and even a booby cake mold. But nowhere was there a phallus to be seen. Slightly defeated, I went home and jumped on Google, knowing that I'd surely find something online. I typed in penis cake pans, and within half a second, I had three promising options to choose from. The first was a disposable penis-shaped cake pan. It was not only reasonably priced, but it provided a bit more discretion than a non-disposable pan. <laughs> Once you are done creating your penis cake masterpiece, the description read, just stuff these disposable pans deep in your trash basket under the egg cartons and banana peels. No one has to know about your wild bachelorette party. Good point, I thought, imagining my mother finding it in my cupboard. <laughs> the second was the erotic penis cake pan. This is, not, this is not the biggest cake pan that we have, but it is fairly large, the description read. The penis shape is about 10 inches long and about 6 inches wide at the balls. The pan is non-tarnishing and dishwasher safe. You can use this versatile pan for gelatins, cakes, cookies, or even as a serving dish. <laughs> My interest had been piqued. I imagined welcoming guests to a house party and informing them that coats were in the guest room, drinks were in the fridge, and, if they were hungry, Chips were in an aluminum dick sitting on the coffee table. <laughs> so much for disposable, I said, crossing it off the list. The battle was now between the erotic penis cake pan and another product, one which the manufacturer simply called the big boy. <laughs> Measuring in at 12 and a half inches long, 10 inches wide, and 3 inches deep, the big boy was touted as the largest penis cake pan on the market. And as I read the description, it struck me as having been written by the late Billy Mays. Hey, you, it barked. Are you looking to make a really large penis cake? I'm down with that. Everyone likes a penis cake. Penis lovers want to eat it, and penis haters want to cut it. That's good, Saul. That's good. It was, again, the last part that got my attention. Aside from the overall girth, the thought of angering at least one feminist put the big boy head and shoulders over the rest. I whipped out my debit card and was about to purchase it when I noticed that, with express shipping, which I needed because the party was less than a week away, the bill would exceed $60. This was a little steep for my budget at the time, and even when I tried it with the other options, it still exceeded my price range. What to do now? 
Aside from pans, my Google search turned up several how-to videos on YouTube. These were professional cake makers showing the world how to construct a lifelike penis cake from scratch and without a mold. My favorite was a three-part, 28-minute tutorial by a woman named Brandy, who assured her viewers that she'd simplified the process so that the amateur-slash-home decorator would achieve the same results. I tried to use as few tools as possible, she said, to which I responded, no pun intended. <laughs> her process truly was simplified. Take two sheet cakes, put one on top of the other, adhere them together with frosting, then cut them into the shape of a shaft. Make a third sheet cake and cut four circles out of it, then use these to form the rough shape of the testicles. Use a few of the leftover pieces to form the tip of the penis, then cover the whole thing in frosting. Add gelatin for desired pubic hair effect. <laughs> Simple enough, I thought. I can definitely do this. No pun intended. My confidence going to the kitchen was high, still soaring from a few months earlier when I'd successfully made a giant shakeaway costume to wear to a friend's Halloween party. People had told me it couldn't be done. How the hell are you going to make a shakeaway? But with a giant, giant paper roll, some gray spare paint, a roll of duct tape, and a good deal of determination, I succeeded. How hard could a penis cake be? It was also the shape I was working with. Artists will tell you that the most difficult part of the human body to draw is the hands. I don't exactly remember why, but it has something to do with the structure and the wrinkles in the veins. The penis is a different story, however. Spend a day in an all-boys Catholic high school, and you'll find them drawn on almost every surface possible. <laughs> Spend a day in an all-girls Catholic high school, and you'll easily do the same. Sex doesn't matter, nor does the quantity of useful whims you possess. You could be a quadriplegic, and still, with a pencil clamp between your teeth, draw the most anatomically correct penis the world has seen since Da Vinci. It is, as I've come to recognize, the stick figure of the anatomical drawing world. The problem was I underestimated how difficult it is to bake. Having been able to cook my own dinner for three years at that point, I figured it would be as easy as that. Buy some ingredients, heat them up, and enjoy. But baking is a more refined culinary art, requiring both finesse and patience, two things I greatly, greatly lack. The sheet cakes came out okay, but when I tried to adhere them together with frosting, I failed to take into account how hot they were. The frosting melted and the balls toppled over. <laughs> my tip looked like a botched circumcision. And even when I tried to cover it up all with frosting, the cake was still too warm and fell to pieces. I was, to say, dismayed. With an hour to go before the party, I had no other option but to go to the store, buy 24 cupcakes, and arrange them into the shape of what looked like a rocket ship penis. <laughs> what the hell is that? Pear asked as I walked into the party. What do you think it is? I said. It's a cupcock. She smiled. A cupcock? I wanted a chocolate penis cake. Where's my chocolate penis cake? Okay, I said, you have no idea what I just went through or the pain I experienced. To which she responded, no pun intended. Thank you. Chainsaw Chris, give it up for Chris Pilney, everyone. hilarious uh i saw like the woman's face light up when you started talking about baking because I, I did that same thing with cakes only i mean they weren't shaped like penis but um where you put them together too soon and then they melt and you know, like crumbles to pieces and so that's, that's awesome <laughs>
The customer comments on yeah. like online. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. What do you remember any of them? It was it was like um, well, for the disposable one, someone had said uh, my friend had had a penis cake and her daughter found it and surprised the whole family with a penis cake. <laughs> <laughs> she was twelve apparently. Oh my god. <laughs> And you, this was like at a like a sex shop, right? Not like Kroger. No. <laughs> uh, oh, online you'd buy. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. So you can't get it at Kroger, everyone. Um, <laughs> but I will say the cake. I I, I did eat it afterwards. Yes. Yeah. My roommates here. And we, we probably ate like everything for the next two weeks. <laughs> I would come in and find him gnawing on the balls. <laughs> Amazing! You guys should have saved a piece and like had it on your anniversary of your of your roommate uh, your roommate anniversary. Um, okay, the married people, we're gonna clean it up from here. It's gonna get a little cleaner now. Um, <laughs> are you sure you want to be here for this? No, he's not sure. <laughs> yes. I know. He's going to start a support group for storytellers, spouses, and uh, significant others. So, All right. So this one is titled The Center Piece, like P-E-A-C-E, but the other one too. Okay. After the sixth batch of centerpiece emails with my design-savvy girlfriends, it hit me what I had become. I promised my fiancé that I wouldn't be the type of girl who gets all consumed by the nitty-gritty details of planning a wedding. But here's the problem. Centerpieces don't just walk up onto the table themselves. (laughs) Someone's got to create the wedding vision, and someone's got to execute it. I heard that in the old days, the groom used to plan the wedding. I'd like to see pictures of those centerpieces. Bowls of potato chips and buckets of beer. My fiancé informed me that if it were up to him, there would be no centerpieces at all. In his defense, this was after I made the rookie mistake of running by him my gamut of ideas. Guys do not like ideas, especially centerpiece ideas, which ranged from lemon trees at each table to a medley of gorgeous yellow flowers and yellow fruits. Our color was obviously yellow, along with gray, but I decided to ignore that color since the only gray flowers and fruits were either dead or moldy. (laughs) My fiance gasped at my endless ideas, especially the lemon tree. Really, he asked, a lemon tree? It's not that he has anything against citrus plants. The centerpiece was just the idea that broke my groom's back. He let out a long, deep groan. It was the same confused cry I heard him make a few days earlier. I remember running frantically to our home office, wondering who had died or what kind of shenanigans the tea party had gotten into now. But instead, my fiancé spun around in his black leather office chair. Behind him, I could see that he was logged on to our restoration hardware registry. A mango slicer, he said. (laughs) 
I thought he'd be thrilled that I found this innovative kitchen gadget. Plus, he loves mangoes. But he thought it was ridiculous and a good example of America's addiction to consumption. I knew from past experiences with my conservationist fiancé that planning something as wasteful as a wedding would be like trying to sell the Duck Dynasty a Prius or a set of Norelco clippers. So, in an effort to make the wedding process seem simple, my strategy was that I would do the bulk of the legwork, then just present my findings to my husband. Or my fiancé, sorry, messed that up. Um, I didn't even bother to inform him when I went into Restoration Hardware to register. Just did it on my own. I waited and waited for the perfect time. I waited until he was deep in the Nevada desert, filling the love at the arts festival of all arts festival, otherwise known as Burning Man. In hindsight, I realized it was sneaky and deceptive to register behind my fiance's back. But you see, in my mind, he had lost his shopping privileges early on in the relationship. This was after he failed to savor the Target experience. <laughs> to me, Target is a half-day event. It's the highlight of my day, or let's face it, my weekend. To him, he just wanted to get in and get out. He brought a list. He stuck to it. He hovered. He paced. I didn't want to be rushed like that with something rushed like that when it came to something as monumental as registering for my wedding. I mean, our wedding. <laughs> Plus, I knew he'd drag his feet and always find something to be a higher priority than selecting silverware and duvet covers. I, on the other hand, could not imagine a single scenario that could precede this process. I know I promised that I wouldn't become a bewitched bride, hyper-focused on the material aspects of a wedding, but that was before I realized this was my big chance to finally own a coffee maker with lots of buttons. <laughs> when I shared my registry frustrations with my friend, she pointed out that I could just simply buy a nice coffee maker myself. She had a good point. However, I made a mental note to never speak to her again. <laughs> She was a registry killjoy. Instead, I spent days on end perfecting our registry. I even had dreams where I'd have these elaborate holiday meals and visions of various serving pieces danced in my head. I never prepared a single holiday meal, but surely once I was married, I would immediately. I'd wake up and immediately log on to the registry and start editing I didn't want to forget a single item spoken to me in my dreams by the wedding fairies. As I typed away on my computer first thing in the morning, my husband would smile at me, thinking I was hard at work. I didn't have the heart to tell him I wasn't working on my book. It was all worth it, though, because, oh, what a thrill it was when those restoration hardware boxes arrived. <laughs> I'd tear them open, wondering which of the gifts it was that I already knew I was getting. <laughs> Somehow, knowing what was inside made it no less exciting. In fact, after receiving the first few gifts, at just the very sight of a UPS truck headed in the direction of my house, I got wet. <laughs> 
I guess I'm just a traditionalist after all. And by traditionalist, I mean Bridezilla, who I never wanted to be, but somehow I briefly became. Luckily, our relationship is built on a lot more than a killer set of mint blue restoration hardware dishware and top-notch stainless steel all-clad cookware. That's just the icing on the cake. Fortunately, our relationship is filled with an undeniably delectable center, comprised of 100% organic ingredients. Humor, acceptance, understanding, and most important, willingness to compromise. Speaking of which, sadly, I did not get to have lemon trees as centerpieces. But thankfully, we didn't have bowls of potato chips either. Instead, simple yet vivid bouquets of yellow flowers set against slate gray table linens played in the background of our joyous afternoon. The end. <laughs> Are you ready, Elizabeth? Are you crying? Oh my gosh! Oh, Elizabeth is getting married. When is your when is your date? October six. October six. Yay! Give it up for Elizabeth. I just want to say all these centerpieces were. Oh, thank you. I actually did them myself. Oh, thank you. We had a comedian marry us. It's on YouTube. Our wedding's on YouTube. We can go home and watch it after this. Um, yeah, my mom, we didn't tell anyone that who, who was marrying us. We said it was his friend, a very spiritual friend of ours. Um, and when he showed up, he had like this big, wild, curly hair. And my mom said, Melanie, he's not a stripper, is he? <laughs> That's how crazy my mom thinks I am. I'm not a stripper. I'm not. I'm not Chris Pilney. You know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not Chris. Um, okay. This next guy. I. I literally like. I had to be. I really wanted him to do the show. I've been on him for what, like six months, because he's just one of those people. He's just funny, and he's and he's likable, and he's very uh, intelligent. And I just knew he would have a fantastic story. And the second he sent it to me, I opened it up, and it was, it was just as hilarious as I thought it would be. Um, he has been with his wife for 27 years, but not, not married, but together. So he knows what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> and so I'm very thrilled that he was able to make it here tonight, because apparently this is a big day where everyone's dropping their kids off at, at a camp. So... <laughs> Um, both, two of our storytellers almost could not be here because of, of camp. So apparently that's where I will be in about a couple years. Okay. So please, please welcome, warm welcome for Peter Gross. So I do have a title for my story. It's the, it's the three rules of intimate relationships. Um, I was actually a little worried coming here before the first two speakers that it might be a little too explicit for this group, but um, th those fears have largely been assuaged. <laughs> it was 1986 when I first laid eyes on Shelley. 
She was beautiful, had a big mop of curly hair, reading glasses, and was leading, leaning over a desk studying French literature. We were students at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. In the intervening years, I've learned that there are three things that I absolutely know about intimate relationships. This is not a fact that should be entirely comforting, either to myself or to Shelley. The truth is there are probably 3,000 things I should know about intimate relationships, and in 45 years, I have only figured out three. One idea for every 15 years of life. Seems about right. Rule number one, growing young together is harder than growing old together. My wife and I met when she was 19 and I was 18. She was the first, and to the best of my knowledge, the only person that I've had sex with. It lowers my self-esteem, it lowers my self-esteem even as I say it, but also highlights just how early in our lives we became a part of each other's. It's not clear to me how people in my parents' generation and before managed to keep their relationships together for so long. Most of them met very young, married very young, and presumably had few sexual partners or only one. Many of them got married after knowing each other for only a little while. In the animal world, this doesn't matter at all. Only in the human world have we transcended the idea that relationships are about more than survival and some base idea of comfort. The gibbons or swans or schistosoma mansoni worms that mate for life <laughs> rarely if ever, ever utter the phrase, I feel like I married my mother. <laughs> even though in a very real sense they did. After all, can you tell the difference from one female worm to the next? It's difficult, unless you are the Mozart of self-awareness, to know early in your life that one, you'd be inclined to marry your mother, regardless of which sex you are, and two, that a good part of what attracted your spouse to you was the fact that you behave in fundamental ways like one or both of her parents. I won't speak directly to whether my wife and I either resemble or emulate either of our parents, I will, however, point out that one of us is a narcissistic, judgmental, fearful, compulsive overeater, and the other is a restless, depression-prone, neat freak. I have back problems, and after an MRI, my doctor told me that I had a bulging disc. He further shared that if he did an MRI on random people, that many of them would end up with the same diagnosis, some with symptoms and some without. If I did some magnetic relationship imaging on random couples in this audience, or among my friends, I suspect I would find many of these same conditions, even though I can't necessarily see the symptoms. The good news is that none of these things are deal breakers, or at least they have not been for us for the past 27 years, although they have sometimes come close. It's plenty hard enough, however, to figure out all of that on your own. But when you have to figure out your shit, while someone you love is figuring out her shit, and much of your shit conflicts, there's bound to be trouble. Which brings us to rule number two. The universe magically pairs people together who know exactly where each other's buttons are, and they know how to push them. There are approximately seven billion people in the world, yet most people find one of the handful of people most likely, over time, to push our buttons, and to force us to confront those questions that our upbringing left us longing to answer. I grew up with a mother committed to avoiding disorder or chaos, ranging from having no dirty dishes in the sink to the total absence of audible bodily functions. <laughs> While she is a great mother, the message in life is clear about the extent to which personal control and order is encouraged and expected. As a very young child, I took up the habit of opening up drawers and throwing the entire contents onto the floor. <laughs> This approach to personal order continued from two years old until I was approximately 35. 
My messiness stopped right around the time we adopted the first of our two kids. And now today, the thing that drives me the most insane is my son leaving a trail of random items from his bedroom to wherever he ends up, including flip-flops, Pokemon cards, half-empty bowls of hummus, and some used tissues. That I picked a partner who frets about the house being a disaster, even when it's not, is evidence of the following. While she pales in comparison to my mother's obsession with neatness, I could have easily found myself attracted to a hot, messy girl. I did not. And that is partly because whatever questions I was asking while throwing clothes out of a drawer when I was two, I was continuing to try to answer when I was 22 and 32. If five years in group therapy taught me anything, it's that those we choose to be intimate with is a complex web of good fits, meaning healthy attractions, and bad fits. The bad fits range from the much more tragic stories of those who have been abused, seeking out abusers, to more mundane bad fits, like most of us have. As an example, if your parents routinely ignored you while parading around with fur-lined, sequined capes, then don't be surprised after your wedding when your spouse starts to act a lot like Liberace. And if one of you acts like Liberace, the other is likely to prefer torn jeans and to refuse to spend any money on clothing, because of rule number three. There is a little-known scientific formula for relationships that reads as follows. For each spouse, at least one major neurosis will be matched by an equal-sized neurosis of exactly the opposite type in the other spouse. <laughs> My personal character defects are of the nature that lead to inaction, avoidance, and fear-based decision-making. It took thousands of mistakes, hundreds of avoided conversations, dozens of missed opportunities, and a couple of addictions to bring those defects into my conscious mind. Over the years, these defects have played themselves out in our relationship over and over again as my general tendencies towards lethargy, indecision, and what might virtuously be described as patience have run headlong into Shelley's, quote, can-do attitude, unquote, sometimes described as restlessness or impatience. Until last July, we lived in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Washington, D.C., in a lovely but limited row house with a crappy kitchen and one incredibly crappy bathroom. Even purchasing the house was an exercise in Shelley's boundless and terrifying optimism versus my genetic predisposition to assume that we are only a few minutes away from financial ruin. For those of you not raised Jewish, it is an indisputable fact that the difference between a $1,600 monthly payment and an $1,800 monthly payment is like the difference between a life of solid and quiet desperation and one of financial ruin, divorce, loneliness, and early death. <laughs> Throughout the 10 years we were in the house, Shelley drove us forward to make improvements while I hemmed and hawed and eventually gave in and, of course, loved every minute of the renovated bathroom, second bathroom, central air conditioning, and other improvements. On the largest decision, whether to do a major kitchen renovation and uh, an addition, or to move and increase, and increase our monthly payment substantially, we effectively stalemated each other for years and had to move to Nashville last year to break the tie. <laughs> it is worth noting that we moved closer to be closer to her mother and father. I could give you a bunch of 12-step type language about how leading with fear or being lethargic is about passive control. I could also convince you about the extent to which their opposites have similar pathologies. Ultimately, who cares? None of these three rules, or even 3,000 rules, matter. In a marriage that is till death do us part, you figure out how to forgive the growing pains that come with the mutual shit-figuring. You figure out how to stop pushing each other's buttons, or how to take some of the power out of your own buttons. 
and you recognize the strengths that come from opposite approaches to emotionally charged issues. In, many in my challenging moments, it's helpful to think back to the mop of hair and the studious manner and the forebodingly neat and organized dorm room. I loved Shelley the minute I laid eyes on her. That's it, and I have loved her ever since. Even when the house is messy, but not really. Or the bathroom needs remodeling. Or even when the lights are dimmed, the music is low, and I begin ever so faintly to resemble her mother. <laughs> Gross, keep it going. This is first time ever doing anything like this. <laughs> oh, real quick, how many, uh, how many, where are the single people? How many people are single? Oh my gosh, okay. And where are the married people? Where are the people who have been married and never do it again? Let's see it, okay. <laughs> all right, so we're, we're all split up. This is good, this is good, good mix. Okay. Well, um, this next lady, uh, I really, really respect her. Um, she's a wonderful, wonderful writer, and I'm thrilled that this is her second time at the show, um, and I'm thrilled she wanted to come back and do it again. Uh, her story is just wonderful, and please welcome Kayanani Hubbard. Woohoo! I'm good now. Kayanani Hubbard. Shit. Honey, come into the kitchen with Mommy. I'm waiting for the doctor to get on the line. I can hear my husband moaning and throwing up again. Damn, I just changed those sheets. Savannah, come in here. Daddy is really sick right now and needs to be alone. Our daughter is riveted by her father's retching. The doctor comes on, directing me to call an ambulance. Tell them to take you to Cedar sinai because I'm on call. If they tell you it is full, demand to go there anyway. I'll see you in the emergency room. Mommy, Daddy looks strange. No one believes she is only three, probably because she routinely wears a miniature doctor's lab coat with a Savannah MD tag and performs surgeries on her stuffed animals. I run into the bedroom. Wade is on his back and silent. There is vomit on the floor, and our daughter is quietly observing the scene through her steel-blue eyes. Savannah, come help me in the kitchen. She doesn't move. The 911 dispatcher comes on immediately, asking me what my situation is. My husband has a brain tumor, and he... Where are you calling from? My house. Uh, he's been vomiting, and she interrupts me. Street address, please. Uh, um, yeah... Why does my mind keep failing me in these moments? I should be a better soldier, but every time I stick my head out of the foxhole, the gunfire freezes me and my mind seals shut. What is your address, she says, exasperated. I finally wake up. 6537 Moore Drive in Carthay Circle. I think he's unconscious now. His doctor told me to... Sirens fill the air. Their scream is timed to the beat of my heart. I think I hung up the phone, but I may have dropped it. Savannah runs for the door. Watch out, baby, let me open it. An ambulance has pulled up with fire trucks surrounding it. Their lights continue to spin like a drunken disco ball. Savannah and I step out onto the landing, 
while four gorgeous men pour out of the vehicles. Where is the patient? One of them politely demands as he runs towards me. Back? He's in the back? I pull Savannah close. The smell of their cologne wafts about me as these beautiful paramedics run past me in single file. My heart stumbles as the heat from their uniforms press against my thighs. The raw strength of these young men is painfully attractive. My husband has a Frankenstein scar riddled with staples on his head. He has gained 40 flaccid pounds of jiggle from an abundance of steroids and is primarily exhausted around the clock. Of course I want four manly men to protect me. I want to be saved. I do not want to hold this life together on my own. Okay, what's going on? Paramedic hunk number one begins his rapid-fire questioning. (laughs) How could this man be so beautiful? And why is he talking to me about, about medication? He shouts at me, and I come back into my body with all the attendant anxiety the moment requires. Sexy men are swarming through my house, and I trip over them as I herd them into the back bedroom. Mr. Manly Man number two is shouting at Wade, asking for his name and today's date. Wade gurgles a few unintelligible words as his eyes roll back. Mr. Hottie number three claps his hands loudly in front of Wade's face, which only causes him to open one eye and nod his head backwards. More clapping results in their strapping Wade to a stretcher that floats through the living room on a wave of their testosterone. I call my friend Shiva. I need you to come over now. I have to get to the ER and the ambulance is already here. I'll be right there. Our neighbors are piling up on the lawn and I hand Savannah over to Linda. It wasn't easy being my friend or neighbor. Where do I fit? I meant to say, where do I sit? But I've taken on so many roles since we embarked on this cancer trail that I'm confused as to who I am anymore. I didn't even have time to change out of my sweatpants after the radiation appointment, and I hadn't showered in two days. Life is disjointed. All that was will never be again. I am installed in the front seat next to another Adonis, and I mention it is my birthday. He tells me I can push the siren pedal, (laughs) pretending it is a throng of friends shouting out, Happy birthday! I put my left foot gingerly on the floor pedal, using as little force as possible to press down on it. A staccato burst of sound ensues. Go ahead, really give it a push. I slam my foot down, and the siren burst into bloom, slicing the air with its wailing call. Wade is pushed to the side of the hallway as all 30 rooms in the ER are occupied, including the two trauma surgical suites. The smell of loose bowels puckers my nostrils. There are five patients already stacked on this part of the hallway. Every open space has a sick person Velcroed to it. The woman groaning on the stretcher in front of us reeks of the alcohol frothing from her pores. A nurse speeds past, a lingering trail of cigarette smoke in her wake. This is the most chaotic I have seen the emergency room, and the visual, auditory, and olfactory signals impale my senses. Dr. Peichel is already downstairs and orders a CT brain scan immediately. Before Wade is wheeled off, he is given a shot of steroids as the doctor thinks his brain is swelling. Too many hours later, Wade is resting in a hospital bed. I am snuggled next to him. 
He is mostly conscious, as the high-dose steroids have done their job. How did I get back here? Your brain was swelling, and you were throwing up and went unconscious. We came by ambulance. But you need to know that paramedics in L.A. have to enter a beauty contest in order to work. I swear they are godlike. They rescued you, and I couldn't stop staring at them. As this cancer touches our lives, we find humor wherever we can. He thinks it's funny that I steal medical supplies from the rooms, do comical imitations of the hospital personnel, and cheat at cards when he's nodding off from the pipey pain medication. I am in awe of his fortitude. He doesn't want our child to be fatherless. He puts his body, emotions, and soul in front of the firing squad and looks his death straight in the eye. He doesn't believe he will die. In order to make it through this, I've had to believe along with him, silencing my skepticism and getting as far away from Google as possible. He makes it home a few days later with his brain adjusting to a higher prescription of steroids. Did you like my present? He asked over morning coffee. He wasn't able to get me a gift this year because the cancer treatment swallowed his daylight hours. I thought pretty hard about that one and decided... Uniformed men might be at the top of your list. Once again, we laugh in tandem. Thank you. Kay and Annie Hubbard, give her a big round of applause. Thank you all so much for coming and sharing this night with us, or afternoon. Now you heard, go spread the word They're funny, smart, and so absurd Happens every month It's the neatest storytelling At its sweetest